As I said during the greeting, my name is Bo. I'm one of the senior high ministers. I would not blame you if you asked why does a uh, why does a church of this size need two senior high ministers? Um, if you're not aware of how we're how we are uh, organized, I do the teaching. So I guess my official title is senior high teaching ministry or minister. And Ben Cameron does the administration. And we both serve in the community, have jobs in the community on a full-time basis, and serve here on a part-time basis. Um, I have a hard time whenever I describe Ben and I's work together, I have a hard time gush- not gushing about our giftedness and how it fits together and um, how much God has taught me in the last year and three months about our gifts coming together. And that's one of the reasons we gather here is to, to complement each other, be the body, and to, to serve God through our gifts. Ray's sitting over here. Ray, our technology director, likes to say that we're not a complete youth minister unless we're actually together. Because we know Ben. Ben's fairly goofy and and is rarely serious, where I tend to be maybe a little too serious. I like to spend time with ideas, and Ben likes to spend time with people uh, most of the time. So it, it ends up complementing each other uh, very well. As I said, the senior high teaching minister, which puts me in line to deliver the message this week, because... My dad and Justin, they're both here this morning or will be here this morning, but they were both out of town for the majority of the week. I'm really happy to do so, especially in the story, get the story around the sanctuary. That I think the story is great because it, it illustrates to us that God has been in control. He continues to be in control, and it really highlights all of the different times that God has really shown up throughout human history, which I think is great. Today we're going to be looking at Moses. Before we get there... I want to talk about where we've, where we've been. So first week we talked about creation. And if you, um, there's a lot packed into the first three chapters of the Bible. If you read a commentary on Genesis, you're going to find that there's probably going to be hundreds of pages dedicated to Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Because in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 we learn about who we are, who God created us to be, um, what our purposes are, what the world is. Um, and then we learn about in the fall that we continue to be good, the world continues to be good, but it's broken. Okay, so we learn that the world is broken, but not completely broken. We learn that we're separated from God, but not completely separated from God. We learn that we are now bad, but we're not completely bad. We're still created in God's image. There's just so much there. Then we went on to the talking about Abraham. Abraham, we went through Noah. Noah with the flood. That if you read Genesis 4 through uh, 9 or so, you learn how uh, corrupt humanity actually became after the fall. And then you, you see that, that God save the world through Noah, and then with Abraham, he decides to save the world through a people, through Abraham. We learned about Abraham, we learned a lot about faithfulness, hopefully, we learned that his faithfulness um, is admirable, that he had faith in God, that he could move to a new place and God would bless him, and he could he could sacrifice his son or be willing to sacrifice his son, and God would bless that. And then we learned about Joseph last week, who is Abraham's grandson, and from hopefully you were blessed through Joseph's story as I was. Um, that in Joseph's story, I think we learn that the, the ordinary can add up to the extraordinary. Um, and that through trials, through faithfulness over time, at least the fruitfulness, ultimately, that we learn that even if your brothers sell you into slavery, which hopefully doesn't happen, or you're accused of attempted rape and you get thrown into prison, which hopefully doesn't happen, even throughout all of that, if you stay committed to God's purposes, stay committed to pleasing Him, that He can lead you into into doing great things. And even if the things do not seem great to you, you're still fulfilling your purpose. We learned that Joseph went to um, Egypt through God's God's hand, through his providence, ended up in Egypt. And in Egypt, 
he ended up saving a certain percentage of the world because of his wisdom and his discernment in, in preserving some of the harvest for um, ultimately his brothers and his family, Egypt and, and much of the Middle East. So that's where we're at. We're going to end up talking about Moses today, which is really set, the scene is set by what Joseph did. Before we jump into the specific story about Moses, I want to make sure that we nail it down in space and time. Okay, when, when we come to Scripture, I think it's important, one, to know the context of where we're reading, where we're talking about. That's kind of literature 101 or history 101 that you need to know where did this happen, when did it happen. So then with the Exodus, the Deliverance, you see the title of the message today is Deliverance, um, which is the title of the, the section in the story that concerns Moses' story here. There's a little bit of debate, either 1450 and 1250 B.C. are kind of the two dates that people point out. There's different reasons for why you would believe one over the other, and there's reasons for why there's dispute. There isn't dispute that this actually happened. Okay, if we believe the Bible, we believe this actually happened. For instance, in Exodus 6, um, there's actually included a genealogy of Moses and Aaron. Would you include gene- a genealogy in a myth? Probably not. Um, so that, that tells us that this is something that historically happened. It refers to, to Pharaoh, to the Egyptians, which were um, a great power at the time. And then the place where it happened, modern-day Egypt. This entire story happens in modern-day Egypt. The, the first part of the story is going to be, when they're actually in Egypt, is going to be the uh, kind of the, the Nile Delta. It's a very fertile area. And then when they're wandering, they're actually wa- wandering in the Sinai Peninsula, which is still a very rugged, desolate area that all the unrest that we've had in Egypt in the last few years, that's been an area where um, there's been a lot of vigilantes, a lot of um, groups kind of taking refuge in the wilderness there, and that's where a lot of the battling has been. Okay, so that's where, it, where it's happening, gives us some context. I also think that it, at least for me, this is important for me, it reminds me that we're not just reading some myth that happened maybe happened, maybe did not happen, and we're just believing in God because of wishful thinking. This really happened in history. It really, um, our God that we still serve, the God that indwells us, the God that we are serving, the God that we're remembering through communion, actually came and showed up and did these great signs that we're going to talk about. Okay, so that's where we're at. What we're going to try to do with the outline, um, and I might bite, bite off more than more than we can chew, but um, the way I like to approach Scripture, the way I think Scripture is, is wisely approached as we look and see what the scripture says, which is going to be our story this morning, and then we take it for what it is, and then we say, okay, what can we learn about it from God, which is what we should celebrate, and then ultimately what application does that have for us? Because knowing God always leads to application, always leads to greater trust, hopefully greater obedience. Okay, so that's what we're going to try to do. So starting with the story, I'm going to try not to, to go too fast, there's a lot to cover here. If you know there's 17 chapters I'm trying to condense down into, into a story here um, for us to learn, learn from and, and be blessed from. So starting off, like I said, Joseph brought his people to Egypt. There were 70 of them originally. Exodus 1 tells us there were 70 of them. And then it tells us that they grew and they grew and they grew. They multiplied and over about 400 years, what we learn later, they have multiplied into probably about 2 million people. Okay, and over that time, the... Pharaoh, understandably, um, gets upset or gets concerned. The people get concerned. The Egyptians get concerned. We have these two million people living in our land. What if they become greater than us and they decide to take over and they um, decide to join our enemies and, and fight against us? 
case that was their concern. So in response, they, um, not justifiably, they made the Israelites their slaves. They put taskmasters over them. Uh, and some of the great things that, some of the great wonders that are still standing in Egypt may have been built by, by the Israelites. These hundreds of years pass. If Abraham was around, if Abraham was able to look on this, he'd probably be thinking, God, where's my people? So you have my people being slaves here. They're multiplying, but they're slaves. God says, I have it. Okay, kind of like he did with Joseph. That the years pass, hundreds of years pass, and ultimately, um, kind of ironic, Pharaoh said he told the Israelites, he told their midwives that they need to cast all uh, newborn boy Hebrews or Israelites into the Nile River, which actually happened to Moses. Moses' wife, or wife, mother, kept him for three months. Um, Saul, he was a fine child, the text says, and then put him into the Nile River, like she was instructed to do. Uh, but she put him in a basket, and she sent his sister to go watch as he was in the, the river. Pharaoh's daughter comes down to the, the river. She sees the baby in the basket. She has pity on the baby in the basket. Moses' sister comes out and asks if she would like her to retrieve a, a Hebrew woman to nurse the child. She says yes. Of course, she goes and gets their mother to come and, and nurse the child. And it says that she did, and then or Moses is put into Pharaoh's house and he's raised as Pharaoh's daughter's own. Then the text skips. It's kind of hard for us to follow because we, we get a lot of details in our novels and our movies and our stories, but it skips probably 20, 30 years. We don't know for sure. And the next thing we hear about is Moses going out to see his people, to see what is going on. And he goes out, he sees an Egyptian beating one of his fellow Hebrews, so he knows he's a Hebrew. Um, and he looks here and there, doesn't see anyone watching strikes the, the Egyptian dead, buries him in the sand, and thinks he got away with it. Next day he comes out, okay, so maybe he made a habit of this, maybe this is a daily thing he did, maybe he saw himself as the, the overseer of the Hebrews. Um, he went back out the next day, he sees two of his Israelite brothers, or Hebrews, he used the words interchangeably, arguing with each other. When he saw them arguing with each other, he says, your brothers, why are you struggling with each other? And they, their response was, what, are you going to kill us like you killed the... Egyptian yesterday. Moses panics. He realizes he's found out, so he flees into a land called Midian, which is out into the and into the wilderness across the Sinai Peninsula. Okay, he goes there. He meets Jethro's, um, who is the priest of Midian. The text tells us he meets their his daughters at a well. At the well, he helps them draw water for their flock. They go back and they say they tell about Moses. Moses is taken into the house. He, is, he ends up marrying one of Jethro's daughters. Okay, so he finds a place to live, finds a uh, community to live with there, maybe there for a couple decades. Okay, and then we get the story, once again, it kind of jumps, the text kind of jumps. We get the story of uh, God showing up in a burning bush to Moses. The bush is burning, the bush is not consumed. Moses is, is obviously kind of thrown off by this. This isn't something you see every day. Uh, which is something we can learn from this text. I think sometimes our over, we can overreact here. We do need to remember that God can do these things. But God showed up in a very, very particular way here with Moses and ends up speaking through Moses, leading through Moses. Uh, so he ends up doing very miraculous things. This is the first of probably the very miraculous things that he does. He talks to Moses from the bush. Moses is obviously even more disturbed by a, a bush talking to him. Um, and so he talks to the bush. God tells him, I'm going to send you to Egypt to deliver your people out of Pharaoh's hands. Moses is not very confident. 
he at first he at first asked, well, how are they going to know that it is um, who you are, who sent me? And he says in a very famous text in the Bible passage, he says, tell them that I am, I am who I am has sent you, um, or I am who I am, tell them I am has sent you, which means a lot about God that he always has been, he always will be. The God that's in this story is still the God of today and will continue to be into the future, which is great hope for us. And then Moses is still not convinced. He says, well, why are they going to believe me? And the text gets kind of funny. I chuckled when I read this this week. He tells them, okay, show them this sign. Throw your staff on the ground. Moses throws his staff on the ground, turns into a serpent. And it says that Moses ran from the serpent. So he threw his staff on the ground. It turns into a serpent. He runs from the serpent. God's like, grab the serpent. He grabs him by the tail, turns back into a staff. Moses is probably catching on at this point. Like this isn't a normal occurrence. The bush wasn't enough. He goes on and gives him a couple other signs that he needs to show the Israelites. So he, Moses says, okay, but God, I can't talk. I can't speak well. Okay, so what are we going to do about that? I'm not very eloquent. Don't worry. Actually, the text says that God gets angry. He says, don't worry, though. I'm sending Aaron, your brother, out to meet you. The question I have here is how Aaron survived as well. Maybe he was found in a basket as well. But Aaron exists. Aaron is going to come out and meet him. Moses is like, okay, finally, I'll keep giving me these things. I'll go and do it. So Aaron comes out and meets Moses. They meet in the wilderness, kind of on Moses' trek into, into Egypt. They go into Egypt, and Moses, in his, um, they first go to the Israelite elders, like, like uh, God told them to do. Okay, so from that we can kind of learn that the Israelites have stayed organized. They view themselves as the people. Okay, that they're not just um, these slaves that are completely disbanded. They view themselves as a people. And then, so he goes and visits them. Um, they somewhat believe them. They're probably pretty skeptical. Then he goes and he sees Pharaoh. Moses and Aaron go before Pharaoh. At first they say, Pharaoh, let my people go. Chuckles at them probably. I'm, I'm one of the most powerful men in the world. What are you talking to me? Let these people go. There's two million of them. They're our slaves. They, our society is built on their, them working. What do you mean let my people go? Okay. In that, actually, Pharaoh gets angry. He decides that he's going to make the Israelites make their bricks with no straw. They're going to have to go get their own straw to make their bricks. The Israelites getting, end up getting angry with Moses because now their work is much more difficult. What is this man coming back from the wilderness and, and making our work more difficult? What's he doing to us? Okay, so they, they get angry. Moses and, and Aaron go back. God's talking to Moses through all this time, telling him what to do. Um, obviously in a very audible voice or we wouldn't have this all very recorded and he probably wouldn't have had the faith to go and do it if it wasn't very audible. So he goes back and talks to Pharaoh. He does the whole staff thing. Throws the staff on the ground. It turns into a serpent. But Pharaoh has his own magicians. They do the same thing. So Pharaoh's like, cool. He turned into a serpent. My magicians can do the same thing. Okay, so they're obviously into into um, some magic arts, some, some witchcraft, so forth. Moses and Aaron go away. This is when the ten plagues start. We are not going to go over every plague. I wouldn't make it through. We're not going to go through every plague. But the first nine plagues, essentially, kind of the theme is this, or the pattern is this. God tells Moses, okay, go before Pharaoh and say this. If he doesn't say okay, if he doesn't say you can let the people go, we're going to do this sign. And then the sign's going to happen. He tells him he's going to harden his heart sometimes. Uh, he's going to harden Pharaoh's heart, which talks to us about how God is in control of everything. Then Pharaoh gets upset. Oftentimes at the, at the plagues, he gets upset. He says, okay, 
Moses, stop. I'll let your people go. Just stop the plague. Moses will stop the plague, the or the the gnats, the boils, the frogs, the blood, so forth. He'll stop it. And then Pharaoh will go back on it. No, I need these people. You're not going anywhere. Okay, so he keeps hardening his heart over and over and over again. Finally, gets to the last one. And, and this kind of rocks our, our view of God. Because our at least my God that I sometimes put into a nice neat box is not able to, to kill a lot of people. He's not able to flood the earth. He's not able to kill all the firstborn. But ultimately, God is God. And we are man. And this is what God did. So God says, okay, this is the last one. I've, I've hardened Pharaoh's heart up to this point. He's hardened his own heart. Go and tell him, if he doesn't release you and your people, then I'm going to kill all the firstborn, both the Egyptians, their slaves, not the Israelites, and their livestock. Okay, so I'm going to kill all the firstborn. All throughout this, he's been sparing um, the land that Israel has settled in, that they'll have hail on where the Egyptians live, no hail where the Israelites live should have been a sign in itself. There'll be, there'll be locusts in where the Israelite or Egyptians live, none where the Israelites live, which also should have been a sign in itself. And finally, Passover gets instituted. And in this, uh, all the firstborn of the Egyptians are killed. The Israelites are instructed to put blood around the doorframe of their house, which they do. And it, as a result, they are passed over. All the Egyptians have their firstborn killed. And it says there was a great cry over the land in Egypt. So in the night, Pharaoh doesn't even wait till the morning. Calls Moses and Aaron, Moses and Aaron before him. He calls them before him. They, he says, "Okay, get out. You've completely torn my land apart. Okay, get out. Take your people. Go." So they go in the night. As I've already said, well, the text says there's about 600,000 men, which we could probably extrapolate to maybe two million or so total people. The Egyptians, or the, the Israelites, have been in the land for about 430 years. They've gone from 70 people to 2 million people. So you can imagine this. They all pack up their things, 2 million people, and they start wandering into the desert, or start fleeing into the desert. They're not quite wandering yet. But they go fleeing into the desert. It says that God directed them towards the Red Sea. They could have really, if you see the map, they could have gone around the Red Sea quite easily. Um, but God says he didn't send them that way because he knows man's heart. He knows that they're going to see hardship, and since they, the Red Sea is in between them and Egypt, they're going to go back, and they're going to try to be slaves again. Okay? He knows that we do not trust his signs and his commands, that, that if things get hard, we might go back. Okay, so he sends them towards the Red Sea. Pharaoh uh, realizes what he's done. He's kind of short-sighted. At first, okay, get rid of them, get out, get out, you're ruining our lives. Get out, now he's, well, our economy is based on this we need them back so he pursues them he pursues them to the red sea the israelites despite all these signs completely panic they are panicked they see the egyptian army coming god is leading them in a pillar of cloud by day a pillar of fire by night during this time which is completely supernatural he puts the the uh, pillars in between the egyptians and the israelites i don't know what these look like but the text tells us that it, he put it in between them Putting it in between them, it kept them from engaging until he was absolutely ready, until it was his time. Ultimately, the Egyptians pursue the Israelites. Moses says, hey, what do we do? God tells him, take your staff, stretch it over the Red Sea. We grew up in Sunday school. We've seen the pictures. That the, and I don't know if that's really what it, how it happened, how the pictures we see. But the Red Sea parts, the Israelites walk across. 
the Egyptians have to be absolutely petrified or amazed by the Red Sea parting, but they decide to pursue them in their lust for power and in getting these people back as their slaves. They pursue them. The Israelites cross. Moses turns, stretches his staff back over the Red Sea. The Red Sea crashes in on them, and they are drowned. Okay, once again, my God that I like to make up in my head doesn't wipe out an entire army. That's what our God did in the Old Testament. And it's not our job to tell God who he can be, but ultimately respond to who God is. Okay, so from there, the Israelites, you think they would have caught on by now, but now they're in the wilderness. They're in the Sinai Peninsula where no one lives. And they're wandering around. They don't have any water. They don't have any food. And they start crying out to God, why didn't you just let us die by the meat pots in, in Egypt? Why can't we just still be slaves? Despite all the signs they've seen, despite seeing the Red Sea parted, they're still wanting to go back and just be slaves. So God, like he does if he promises, he provides. He promises, he provides manna, which is a supernatural grain, it seems. He provides quail, he provides pure water. And ultimately the Israelites, as you, if you read the rest of Exodus, read Leviticus, read Numbers, read Deuteronomy, wander in the desert for 40 years, being sustained by this manna and this quail for all that time. Okay, so that's our story. The, um, the story in which we're going we're to learn quite a bit about God. So getting to God, about God, and this is where the, the blanks come in. Um, like I said, we want to learn what the Bible says first, and then we want to learn, ultimately, what we can learn about God from, and ultimately celebrate what we learn about God. So first, God listens. Okay, the Several times in the text, God is um, says that he's heard the Israelites cry. He's going to come and save them. We're not going to spend as much time on God listening, but God definitely listens, which is encouragement for us. Next, God delivers. Okay, that God ultimately will deliver us. The title of this, this lesson is Deliverance. Okay, he will deliver us from our troubles. He delivered them from their troubles in very supernatural ways. And he did it all in his own time. That's what we need to remember is that he does it in his own time. He didn't deliver Joseph from hardship when Joseph wanted it. He didn't deliver the Israelites from hardship when they wanted it. Likewise, he will deliver us. He will, he will ultimately work all things together for our good as Christians. But it might not be in our time. So he delivers. Next, he keeps his promises. Okay, on this, I do want to read a, um, a text for you or a quote from the... Exodus 6, God says, I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Like I said earlier, if Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were able to look on what was happening to the Egyptians, do you think they would have been keeping much faith in that God was going to deliver? Maybe if they had great faith, um, hopefully they would realize that God was keeping their promises. But 400 years had passed, but God had not forgotten his promise. He promised to make Abraham a great people. Ultimately, he did. Okay, so in our lives, God has promised us certain things as, a, as Christians. Um, he's promised that we are his children. He's promised that he's going to come back and retrieve those that are his own. He's promised that he will um, not let us be tempted to any place that we can't withstand. Okay, and we have to trust in those promises, even if it doesn't feel like it in the moment. The last point about God, and this is the one I want to focus on. Because I, for me, Looking at this text, it showed up in, in quite big ways. And it's, it's very radical to um, and opposed to how we may look at the world. It is that God glorifies himself. Okay, this is kind of offensively God-centered. You mean the God you worship glorifies 
himself. If I went out and just told somebody that wasn't a Christian in the world today, God glorifies himself. If it, well, you worship that crazy, that crazy God that glorifies himself. And I would want to ask them, I think we think about it wrong if we think that's offensive. But you have to ask yourself, who is God going to glorify besides himself? If, who do you, if you're God, if, you're all, if you have been for eternity, if you are all that is good, if you are um, the ultimate, the alpha, the omega, the beginning, and the end, all these great things, who do you glorify other than yourself? Do you worship nature? Do you worship man? Do you, do you worship politics? No, you only glorify yourself. So, uh, looking at this, once again, another, another text here. Uh, at one point in our text, God spoke to Pharaoh through Moses saying, For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, and listen here, for this purpose I have raised you up. We've raised up Pharaoh largely for the purpose to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Like I said, that's kind of offensively God-centered. Okay, but that's how the world works. That's what this story tells us, is that the world works by God being the center of the world. And the question for us is, are we making God the center of our lives? Okay, if God's the center of the world, and we're not making Him the center of the world, then it's not Him that's wrong, it's us that's wrong. That is wrong. We need to put God at the center of our lives in all ways. And that is ultimately how we're going to fulfill our purpose. That's how we're ultimately going to live purposeful lives and meaningful lives and lives that worship Him for eternity. So God glorifies Himself. And then ultimately, lesson for us, like I said, once we learn things about God, it demands a response. If God keeps His promises, it demands that I respect His promises and believe His promises. If God um, listens, then it demands that I pray. If God uh, provides, if God delivers, then it it uh, ask that I trust his provision and trust his deliverance and then ultimately if God glorifies himself um, then and if we learn from this text if we refuse to glorify God it will be disastrous like I said the world works by God glorifying himself that's how the, the world is designed to work God designed the world God glorifies himself if we try to live in a way that doesn't fit with how the world is designed it's disastrous. If I try to fight gravity, I don't fight very long. Okay? If I try to fight against gravity, I'm going to lose. If I try to fight against glorifying God, which is how the world works, just like gravity works, I'm going to lose. I think we see this in the story. One, we see it in the story in the Egyptians' livestock, their crops, so forth, that they're seemingly their, their well-being was completely wiped out because they refused to glorify God. They refused to um, follow His purposes. And then... If, if there's no greater sign, they lost their firstborn throughout the entire land because they refused to glorify God. And then, even beyond the story, if we look at ourselves, if we think back to our past, our bad decisions always lead ultimately to bad results, eventually. Sometimes very directly, sometimes very obviously, sometimes not as directly and not as obviously. But, if we think about it, don't anger and unforgiveness ultimately lead to broken relationships? think so. I think we've seen that in our lives, that anger and unforgiveness lead to broken relationships. Drunkenness and drug use lead to dependence and destruction and ultimately unfruitful lives. Okay, those are not God-glorifying decisions. If we choose not to glorify God, um, then it is disastrous. And then promiscuity and lust lead to diseases, broken hearts, and ultimately warped minds. Okay, that we, If we seek not to uh, glorify God in our sexual, uh, in our minds, and in our actions, 
and it leads to disaster. We see this all throughout the world, but we like to forget it. We like to think that we can be the masters of our own domain, our own lords, our own bosses, our own decision makers, rule makers. And when we do that, we don't glorify God. Glorifying God is trusting God. Glorifying God is obeying God. As we look in the present and near future, I hope that we can ask for wisdom and strength to make God glorifying decisions. This can be confusing. You might be in church for um, a very short period of time. You might not have a lot of exposure to, to the Bible and Christianity. Uh, and what I encourage you to do there is to maybe get into the Bible on your own, but even more so, really submit to the church body where we're told that we have the teachers and pastors and, and, and elders and whatnot that are supposed to minister to your needs and lead you into living God-glorifying lives. And then in the future, the future, and this is absolutely radical as well, this is entirely God-centered, is that Jesus is going to come back and we're going to glorify Him whether we do it now or we do it in the future. Okay, He's going to come back and judge. Philippians 2 tells us that it, therefore God exalted Him, Him is Jesus, to the highest place and gave Him the name that is above every name, that is glory. That at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the Lord. We get our word glory here to the glory of God the Father. Okay, so we, we know or we have to accept by faith, hopefully we do accept by faith, that Jesus is going to come back. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. We talked about the creation earlier. He's also the end. He's going to consummate all things. He's going to bring everything to a close. It's the same God that carried out these plagues and carried out these great signs. It's the same God that is over Warrensburg, Missouri right now. Okay, that's in this place. And if we don't glorify Him now, we're going to proclaim that He is Jesus Christ in the end anyway. So we might as well live the fruitful lives, live purposeful lives, live lives that glorify Him in the here and now instead of waiting until it's too late. Here's the challenge I want to leave you with. Um, this week, I hope that you, you remember, you meditate, and even more, that you love the fact that God is the center of the universe. Yeah, that we, It's easy for us to make other things the center of the universe. There's other great things in this world, and ultimately, hopefully, you look at those things and you realize that they are signs, they are gifts that should point you towards the Creator. Okay, this afternoon there's NFL football on. Okay, the, the, the beauty and the suspense of sport, okay, hopefully that leads you to worshiping God, the beauty that He's created, instead of idolizing the players or the sport itself. Okay, we see beautiful weather. We don't worship nature itself. We worship God for the creation of the nature. Okay, in everything we do, uh, we need to put God at the center of our relationships, our work, our play, uh, our families, everything, because that's how the world is designed to work. And ultimately, we're not going to find our purpose in anything other than glorifying God. Okay, so it is offensively God-centered, uh, but that's okay, because I don't want the world to be me-centered. I know myself well enough, I know the results of the fall, to realize that me-centered doesn't work. Okay, God-centered is all that works. Bow with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you, you've showed up in, in such majestic ways, in such powerful ways in the past. That I pray that we can look on those stories and, and not be unsatisfied that you don't part seas every day now and that you don't show up in undeniably miraculous ways, turning, turning water into blood and, and staffs into serpents. And, and I, I pray that we'll just look on the miracles that happen in our everyday life and the gifts that you give us, the grace you give us in our everyday lives, that we'll 
that will be enough. That will satisfy us and we'll, we'll thirst for more of you and seek to trust you more and more every day and seek to obey you every, every day. In Son's name I pray all these things. Amen.